Good morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And we thank you that it has been delivered to us through your word. We thank you that many of us this morning have come bringing copies of your word, print copies, electronic copies, Bibles that we read daily. Bibles that we cling to for sustenance. And we praise you, Father, that you have over many centuries and millennia preserved your word for us. And we pray that now as we we talk about that very thing, that you would grant us by the Holy Spirit who inspired that word to grow in our confidence in your word that we might believe it all the more and walk in light of its truth. We ask this in the name of our risen King Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark 16, verse 9. Mark 16, verse 9. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 20. Mark 16, beginning in verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them, and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. For 14 years now, 14 and a half years, it has been our custom week in and week out to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible because we value the Word of God. When we were naming this church, we wanted every every word in that name to mean something, and that's why we called ourselves all this time Providence Bible Fellowship. We are a God-centered, Bible-focused, 
gospel-driven church. We are Bible-focused. And it is precisely because we value the Word of God that I will not be preaching the verses that I've just read to you. And it has nothing to do with the content of those verses. I have nothing, no problem at all with the content of these verses. It actually has everything to do with the note that's found just above those verses in the ESV. And that note reads, Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. You may be reading a different version. If you're reading any of the other modern versions like the NIV, the NRSV, the NLT, the HCSB, the LEB, the CSB, the NASB, the NET, any other modern version, they will have a similar note. Something to the effect that some of the earliest manuscripts or the earliest manuscripts or the best manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. The elders agreed that it would be a valuable use of our time this morning for me to explain that to you. And so this message is going to be unlike any ever delivered at Providence Bible Fellowship and most likely unlike any that ever will be delivered again. And I have several objectives this morning. And the first is to explain how the Bible was transmitted to us. The second is to convince you that the Bible you hold in your hands is a reliable accurate translation of the original text. Third, is to demonstrate that these final 12 verses are almost certainly not original to Mark, which is why I will not be preaching them. And fourth, having done all of that, to encourage you to cherish your Bible, to read it, to believe it, and to walk in light of its truth. Now, I'm going to use slides this morning. Do not get used to it. I'm going to use some volunteers. Do not get used to them either. Because as I said, this is going to be very unusual. We're not going to do this again, Lord willing. Now, with, with the exception of the books of Psalms and Proverbs, which were compilations of, of the works of several authors, each of the books of the Bible were written by a single author. And their original composition we refer to as an autograph. That, that original piece of paper or, or scroll or papyri, we, we call that an autograph. And we don't today have any of the autographs, not a single one. Paul's, Paul's letter to the Philippians, don't have it. The original text of Mark, we don't have it. We have none of the autographs. So, how can we know what they said? Well, we have Bibles today because those autographs were hand-copied. And those hand-copies were hand-copied. And on and on until the invention of the printing press in 1440 A.D. And all of those hand-copies are referred to as manuscripts. And we have found a ton of ancient manuscripts And so the note in the ESV and in in all of our modern translations, those notes simply mean that those last 12 verses in Mark are not found in the earliest manuscripts, which indicates that the manuscripts don't all match. And they don't. Because when human beings hand copy things, no matter how careful they are, 
they make mistakes. And every place that one hand copy or manuscript does not match another manuscript, we call that a variant or a variant reading. And there are more variants in our Greek manuscripts. The Greek manuscripts that we have currently found, there are more variants in those Greek manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Now, when you hear that, and or when you read a note like we see just above 16, 9 through 20 in the ESV, it is natural to ask questions like, can I trust the Bible that I've been reading all these years? Can I really know what the Bible originally said? Or in, in the case of Mark, is it even possible to know if Mark ended his gospel in verse 8 or in verse 20? Well, listen to this. I've been studying the transmission of the Bible for a long time. And I've been studying it with greater depth and intensity in the last six months. And I can tell you that the more I study these issues, the more I thank God for the Bible, and I read it with greater confidence in its accuracy and reliability. Notes like the one attached to Mark 16, 9-20 are evidence for the reliability of our translations, not evidence against it. And Lord willing, you'll agree with me by the time we're done this morning. I want to begin by showing you how skeptics will try to use these issues to destroy your confidence in the Scriptures. They characterize the transmission of the Bible as something like the telephone game, which most of us have played at parties. You know, the game where you sit in a circle and the first person whispers something into the ear of the person sitting next to them, and that second person will whisper what they heard into the ear of the person sitting on the other side of them, and so on and so on. It goes all the way around the circle until the last person says out loud what they heard, and then everybody just laughs and laughs because it's nothing like what the first person said. With the Bible, it's no laughing matter because we don't have the first person to tell us what he wrote because we have none of the autographs. So we can't laugh. We can only cry and distrust our Bibles and be demoralized in the faith. This this is how the skeptics would have us to picture the process. We're going to demonstrate this for you. I've got some volunteers who are going to be scribes for us. First of all, we have Colin. Now, Colin had an inspiring thought that he recorded in his journal. I'm not going to tell you what that was because journals are are private. And so Colin's journal is our autograph, okay? Now, Gracie saw this book laying around, didn't know what it was, so she opened it to see if there was a name inside of it. And She saw something written in the journal that she found worthy of note. And so she wrote that down. She copied it. When she did, she became the first generation copy in the stream of transmission. And here's a look at her copy. Trying to get it to come up here. Go ahead and do that for me. There we go. Pastor Jason should save the beard. Now, if this is anything like what Colin wrote in his journal, I couldn't agree more. 
thought it many times myself, the beard should be preserved. I've never written it down, but I've thought it. But guess what Gracie likely did when she copied that journal? She likely made mistakes because that's just what happened happens when we copy things by hand. We'll never know if she made mistakes because when Colin realized that his journal had been read, he burned it, and so now we no longer have the autograph. The autograph is gone. All we have is a copy, almost certainly containing an error or errors. Now, Gracie left her copy laying around, and David finds it. He also finds it worthy of note. And so he copies it, and his is then the second-generation copy in the stream of transmission. But being a fallible human being, he also makes a mistake. And here here is David's copy. Pastor Jason should shave the beard. Now, if you're paying close attention to Gracie's copy, you'll know that David has actually done two things. He misspelled pastor, possibly to make it parallel with the misspelling of Jason. He's got, a, he's got a, a, an E on the end of pastor or toward the end to, to make it parallel with the misspelling of Jason. And he has added a letter to the verb, a very consequential letter, so that now it means the opposite of Gracie's copy. Pastor Jason should shave the beard, and it now prescribes a world that I frankly don't want to live in. So, we have a copy of a copy of the autograph, and likely errors on top of errors. Quincy found David's copy, and whereas David added a letter, Quincy accidentally omitted a letter, and here is Quincy's copy, Pastor Jason should shave the bear. And so now it appears that Colin thinks that Pastor Jason should go on a suicide mission (laughs) to shave wildlife that isn't even indigenous to southwest Ohio. Why would Colin want that? We have no idea because we don't have the autograph. We have a copy of a copy of a copy of the autograph. Now imagine the horror if Quincy's manuscript is the only one we have. All the others have been destroyed. Here's the only one. Can we actually say, even if we know that the autograph is Collins, can we actually say that this is what Colin wrote? Can we say that with a straight face? We cannot. It's nothing. It's likely nothing like what Colin wrote. You can see that his meaning has been obliterated in just three generations. We may know that he wrote the autograph, but it can't be anything like this. You guys can sit down. Thank you for a second. Thank you. Now, skeptics want us to think that this is what the transmission of the Bible is like. They'll present it this way, and and, and they'll say things like, the the first manuscript that we have is, is hundreds of years after the writing of the autographs. We simply can't know what the autograph said. The reality is that the transmission of ancient texts, certainly the Bible, is not like a written version of the telephone game. There is not one stream, one straight stream of transmission, but rather 
there are multiple streams of transmission. So we're going to do a similar illustration, but with multiple streams of transmission. And this, in this illustration, I've written something, okay? And again, Colin is our first scribe. Colin copies it. And this is what Colin wrote in his first stream copy. Pastor Jason plays the drums well. Pastor Jason plays the drums well. Gracie also is going to copy it. And this is what her copy says. Pastor, okay, she's, she's abbreviated pastor. Pastor Jason played the drums well. If you're paying close attention to Colin's manuscript, you may notice that Gracie's reads differently in four places. So we already have four variants in just two manuscripts of one sentence. Well, David comes along, got David copies it too. And David's copy reads this way, Pastor Jason plays the drum swell. Pastor Jason plays the drum swell. David, he's being as careful as he could, but he just introduced two more variants. So we have six variants in just three manuscripts of one sentence. Quincy makes a copy as well. And so her manuscript reads this way, Pastor Jason plays drums well. Pastor Jason plays drums well. And she didn't mean to, but she made mistakes too. Adding two more variants. So now we have eight. Eight variants in four manuscripts of one sentence. That's eight variants in a sentence that only has five or six words, depending on on whose copy you read. Okay? Now, how are we ever going to know what the original said? Y'all can sit down. Thank you very much. How are we ever going to know? Well, we're going to compare the manuscripts. We're going to put them side by side. We're going to put them all on the same slide so that we can see them. We can see them at the same time. And we're going to put them all in the same font. Okay? We're also going to line up the words and we're going to highlight the variants. All right? And we're just going to take it one word at a time. All right? So, pastor. Just look look there. We've got three that say the exact same thing. One has been abbreviated. What are the odds that three of them would incorrectly not abbreviate the word? Highly unlikely. It is it is likely that pastor spelled out and spelled correctly is the original reading. It is highly likely that the three of them wrote it correctly and that Gracie just abbreviated it. So what's the likely reading? The first word should likely be pastor. We move on to the second word, Jason. Now we've got two variants in one word. Should we panic? No, because they actually aren't the same variant. Only one of the words has a Y. So is that Y likely original? It likely is not original. Only one of the words has an E instead of an O. The E likely is not original. Additionally, those two different ways of spelling Jason, Jason with an E, Jason with a Y, are highly unusual ways of spelling Jason. So what is the likely reading there? J-A-S-O-N 
should be the reading. Pastor Jason. We move on to the third word. This one, again, pretty easy. Three of them read the same way. It is likely that Gracie is just thinking past tense or not paying close, close attention, whatever. The likely reading is plays, present tense. Pastor Jason plays. We move on to the third word. One of them has the word missing altogether. Now, what are, what's the likelihood that three of them added a word and added the exact same word? In other words, what's the likelihood that only one of them got it right and that the word actually isn't there? Highly unlikely that that's the case. It's almost certain that the is original and that Quincy just, her eyes skipped over it. Pastor Jason plays the. We move on to the the next word, drums. Drums. Now this one, we, we, we can surmise actually that David's version that looks like a singular drum he actually still has the S. He's just moved it to the next word. So that, the, the, and this happens, he's got the S, he's just bumped it to the next word, which makes it even more likely that drums plural is the correct reading. Pastor Jason plays drums. Then we move on to the, the final word. This is even easier now that we, we think we know where that S came from. It should be well, almost certainly. An additional factor is the linguistics. And this is, this is a valid piece of evidence. Swell is not common vernacular these days. If it had been written 50, 60 years ago, maybe. But, but this is me. I don't talk like this. So it's almost certainly the original reading as well. Pastor Jason plays the drums well. We move on to the final punctuation. Now, an argument could be made for no punctuation because we're talking about teenagers. Have y'all, have y'all seen how they text each other? Right? But there's actually two arguments for the punctuation. And that is that they didn't write it, I did. That's the first one. A second argument is that the only reason a teenager would write punctuation is if they're copying someone else. Plus, three of them have it and only one has it missing. So, the, the original reading, with almost certainty, is Pastor Jason plays the drums well, period. So, remember when I said that there are more variants in the New Testament manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. We just had, and this, and this is very simple, admittedly, it's a very simple example, but we just had more variants than words here, and we saw how easy it is to identify the errors, and it's easy because the manuscripts don't have all the same errors. And the more manuscripts you have, sure, there are going to be more variants, but you have that many more witnesses by which to measure the other variants, and the errors become that much more obvious. Now, some of you deep thinkers are saying, yes, but what happens when... Like in the first scenario, and as with the Bible, people start making copies of copies and piling errors on top of errors. Well, it it does get a bit more complicated than in this very simple illustration, but not at all insurmountable. Once you get past this first generation of, of copies, and you get into copies of copies, 
You don't just count manuscripts that have a particular reading and the one that has the most readings wins. You don't do that, but rather than counting manuscripts, you weigh manuscripts. Or in other words, you you determine which is the most important reading. Now, what does that mean? Well, you, you look at each manuscript and you determine about each manuscript things like when each one was copied and where each one was copied. Now, why would it matter when a manuscript was copied? In general, in general, the earlier a manuscript was copied, the better because it is assumed that that means there are fewer generations between that earlier manuscript and the autograph. And so an earlier manuscript is weighted more heavily than a later manuscript. And so if in this, in this illustration here, if we were to find uh, several hundred copies later on that said one thing, and we could find any one of these four first-generation copies, we would weight them much more heavily than, than the others. And there are ways of determining the dates of manuscripts that I don't have time to go into. Why would it matter where a manuscript was copied? Because if a particular variant or particular reading is localized, it doesn't matter how many copies there are of that reading, it likely isn't original. So let's say again that that these four teens, they all live in different parts of town, and they take their copies with them, and Colin's copy, he takes over to Westchester, and a hundred people copy it. The other three teens are spread out all over Cincinnati, and theirs are only copied five times each. Remember, remember Collins was the one with no ending punctuation. And so copies with no punctuation, there's a hundred of them, but they're all confined to Westchester. But in all the rest of Cincinnati, they have ending punctuation. Even though Collins' copies outnumber the others, because that reading is localized, it's likely not original. Now, this simplified version of comparison what we've just done is a discipline called textual criticism. Obviously, it has nothing to do with insulting the text. It's just, it is a process whereby scholars gather all of the evidence, as many available manuscripts as we have, and they do the detective work of comparing them to one another and weighing them to determine what the autographs must have said. And we should be very thankful for these textual critics or textual scholars. They are a special breed. Now, I have been accused, mostly by those close to me, of being a nerd. These textual critics make me look like the fawns. I mean, they are incredibly gifted, incredibly intelligent. Their work has been carried on for centuries such that as we have found more and more manuscripts, our confidence in the accuracy of our translations has only increased. And the more that I have studied their work, the more reasons I have found to be confident in the accuracy of the text that we have. I want to give you some of those reasons. If you have some paper, and you want to write some of these down. I've got some slides with these. 
some reasons that I have found to have confidence in the accuracy of the text that we have. The first is that we have found a staggering number of ancient manuscripts. A staggering number of ancient manuscripts. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,300 manuscripts containing portions of or all of the Greek New Testament. That's just the Greek. That doesn't count the many more thousands of the ancient translations in other languages. We have many more many more manuscripts of the Latin version of the New Testament. 5,300 Greek. We have many more than that of Latin and Coptic and Georgian and other languages. No other work of antiquity comes even close to that level of attestation. So remember when I said there are more variants in our Greek manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That's because we have a jillion manuscripts. And the more manuscripts we have, the more points of comparison we have, so the easier it is to spot and isolate those those manuscripts. A second reason to have confidence in, in our text is that the writings of ancient authors, the writings of ancient authors are a valuable witness to the original text. Ancient authors like Irenaeus, Jerome, Justin Martyr, and others, we can compare their writings their quotations of Scripture to our manuscripts as another point of evidence to the original text. These late 1st century and early 2nd century Christians, they were quoting the New Testament in their writings, and so we know what their manuscripts said. So it would be like, imagine if our government decided that that they were going to eradicate the ESV translation from the world so that there are no more ESVs today. They've somehow eradicated the electronic versions. They've got all the the, the print copies. They're gone. Would we be without the ESV? We wouldn't be without it totally, at least not here at Providence. We, we, just our church, we would be able to reproduce in their entirety, the following books just from our sermon manuscripts. Exodus, Joshua, Judges, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Acts, Ephesians, Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians, Philemon, First Peter, and Second and Third John. Just from our sermon manuscripts, we would be able to put those books back together and print them out and we'd have all those books. We could go to our sister churches and probably get all the rest of them. Ha ha, government. We got the ESV back. Now we have that kind of witness in spades in the early church fathers because they were quoting their manuscripts of the New Testament over and over and voluminously. A third reason to find confidence in our text is that no current variant reading poses a meaningful challenge to the Christian faith. There are no variants that say things like, well, you know, the, the, the devil's actually a really nice guy once you get to know him. There's nothing like that. There's, there's nothing like, but we're really not sure if Jesus was raised from the dead. There, there's nothing like that. Nothing doctrinally at stake. And Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, that we read at the beginning of of our time here, 
demonstrates that, and we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes. A fourth reason to find comfort or confidence in our text is that the vast majority of variants are obvious accidental mistakes. The vast majority of variants are so easily dealt with that textual scholars don't even comment on them in their scholarly editions. The vast majority of variants are spelling errors. Like when you, when, when you all saw Jason's name up there over and over, it's obvious. He doesn't spell his name like that. It's a mistake. It's that kind of thing. Many of them are inadvertently repeated lines that stick out like a sore thumb, accidentally skipped lines, transposed words or letters, accidentally doubled words or omitted words. And again, because we have so many manuscripts, it is obvious when those things happen. A fifth reason to be confident in our text is that when we compare the earliest manuscripts to the latest manuscripts, we find remarkable correspondence between them. In other words, our our latest manuscripts and our earliest manuscripts, you put them side by side, there is very little difference between them. And that is not at all what you would expect if we were talking about a 2,000-year episode of the telephone game. The text has been preserved and transmitted with uncanny accuracy across the centuries. And we know this due in large part to the hard work of these textual scholars. Now listen, that is not what you see with other ancient documents. I have spent a ton of time in in recent months reading ancient, extra-biblical Jewish writings. And I can tell you that there is tremendous change that takes place in those documents over time. You do not find that with the Bible, which speaks to the care with which God has moved these biblical scribes to transmit His Word over the centuries. Another reason to find confidence in the Word the more difficult textual variants are noted in our translations with footnotes like the ones that we've seen and the one that we've seen in Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, which indicates that we've identified them. We know where they are. We have so many manuscripts, it is simply inconceivable that there is a significant variant that we are unaware of. And when we see variants noted in our Bibles, we should be grateful that it's been identified clearly through the the manuscript history. We know where they are. We can point to them. They're noted in our translations. The seventh reason to have confidence in our text. Every letter, word, sentence, paragraph, and chapter where we don't see a textual variant noted, indicates that textual scholars have identified no significant variants there. In other words, not only do we know where the significant variants are, but we know where they aren't, which is almost everywhere. But what about Mark 16? Verses 9 through 20. I mean, that obviously isn't a case of a repeated line or a misspelled word. We're talking about an entire section, 12 whole verses. How did that happen? What should we think about it? Why should we believe that it either is original or is not original? First of all, what are the reasons to believe 
that it is original. Reasons to believe that it is original. First of all, those verses are present in the majority of the the manuscripts that we have. Those verses are present in the majority of manuscripts that we have. Remember what I said earlier. We don't count manuscripts. We weigh them. That's important to remember. But one reason to believe that that it may be original is that it's in the majority of them. A second reason to believe that it may be original is that it's is very early. It seems to be very early. We don't have extremely early copies of it, but it is quoted in two early works by these early church fathers. It's quoted. We don't have the manuscript of the actual book, but it is quoted. It's quoted about a hundred years after Mark was was written. It's quoted in the second century, so it's early. So it's 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 a very old reading. And it is, it is widely attested. There are many copies of it. Now, what, what are the reasons to believe that it is not original? The two oldest actual copies of Mark do not have these verses. But rather, Mark ends in verse 8. In the two oldest copies, the two oldest manuscripts of Mark end in verse 8. And those manuscripts date to the 4th century. When we consider the writings of the early church fathers, we find, in my view, the best evidence that the shorter ending, the ending in verse 8, is original. Clement of Alexandria, who lived from 150 to 215 AD, he seems to have no, had no idea about the longer ending. And he wrote voluminously that longer ending, verses 9, 9 through 20, it shows up in none of his writings. The same goes for Origen who lived from 185 to 253 A.D., seems to have had no idea about this longer longer ending of Mark. He wrote voluminously. The longer ending shows up in none of his writings. Eusebius, who lived in 260 to 339, so now we're getting into the 3rd and 4th centuries. Eusebius and Jerome also lived in the, the 4th century. Both of them... It's not only that we don't find the longer ending in their writings, but they testify that they're aware of the longer ending, but that it is absent from most of the Markan manuscripts that they're aware of. In other words, they say, we have looked at as many Markan manuscripts as we can, and it is absent, the longer ending is absent from almost all of the manuscripts that we are aware of. So, what that means is that while today most of the manuscripts that we have do have the longer ending, Eusebius and Jerome said that in their day, that is, at the very beginning, 3rd and 4th century, most manuscripts did not have it. Very early on, most manuscripts did not have the longer ending. Which is evidence of two things. First of all, it was not broadly represented in the early manuscripts. If it was original, we would expect it to be broadly represented from the beginning. A second thing that that Jerome and Eusebius indicate to us, and this should be a great comfort to us, it seems that something like textual criticism, the comparison of manuscripts, was happening from the beginning. It's happening in those early centuries. They're comparing manuscripts and noting what should be and shouldn't be there. 
And Eusebius and Jerome were saying that longer, that longer ending should not be there. Another piece of evidence, even those manuscripts that do have the longer ending, they have notes in the margin saying that it shouldn't be. Even the ones that do have it, not all of them have those notes, but a great many of them have notes in the margin saying this shouldn't be there. So, a lot of these older manuscripts, they have, they have notes much like our ESV do. This, this ending sh- shouldn't be here. There's also evidence from inside Mark that indicate that the longer reading is not original. I want to give you a few of those reasons as well. We call this internal evidence. The manuscript evidence we call external evidence. The evidence from within the book itself we call internal evidence. And I've, I count at least five features of internal evidence that indicate that this, this longer ending likely is not original. First, the vocabulary and style in the longer ending is very different from how Mark writes. And, and I could testify to this myself. I've been studying Mark in Greek now for, for a year and a half, almost two years. These last 12 verses don't sound like Mark. In, in fact, there, there are words here that he just doesn't use anywhere else. There are, there, are, there are 11 words in 12 verses that he doesn't use anywhere else in the, whole, in the whole book. In fact, there are two words in these 12 verses that aren't used anywhere else in the whole New Testament. That's really odd to have that concentration of unique words in such, such a short number of verses. Second reason to believe that it is not original just from this internal evidence, the connection between verse 8 and what follows is extremely awkward. It, it doesn't flow. The, the beginning of verse 9 does not read like the continuation of a narrative, but the beginning of a new one. It repeats material that's already given. So if you look at verse 9, if you've got Mark open still, verse 9, Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, well, that's all redundant material from verses 1 and 2. He already said that. Early on the first day of the week, he rose. And now he's saying it again. If this is original, it's, it's odd repetition. Third, a third reason, Mary Magdalene is introduced with this odd fact as if we haven't seen her already in the narrative, as if Mark has not mentioned her twice. But now he's, he's, he's bringing her up as if we don't know who she is. Fourth, the subject of verse 8 was the women. Now in verse 9, the subject is assumed to be Jesus. Again, a strange shift without an obvious transition. Fifth, what happened to the other women in these verses? They were present in verses 1 through 8. Now they seem to have been forgotten. They're not in verses 9 and following. Now most of the rest of the language, if we were to go through, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning, I've got no problem with the content of these verses at all. Pastor Dan has a different view. He doesn't like the snakes. Now, the, re- the rest of the, the material, the content itself, in, in verses 9 through 20, that can be found, almost all of it, perhaps not all of it, but most of it, can be found in the three other Gospels and Acts. I'm not going to spoon-feed all of that to you and tell you where it's found. Those of you who are walking cross-references, you probably have those cross-references firing off in your head. But it is not... It is not hard to imagine what likely happened here. With this shorter ending of Mark, we kind of felt this last week. That ending in verse 8 
feels abrupt. It especially feels abrupt if you have read the other three Gospels. But almost all Bible scholars believe in what's called Markan priority, which means that Mark was written first. In other words, there wasn't another gospel when he first wrote this, but it wasn't long until there's four gospels. And then you can compare them, and, and if you've read the others, then Mark feels weird. If Mark's the only one, doesn't feel weird. Feels like Mark, as I was trying to, to point out last week. That, that ending, this ending, if it ends in verse 8, that fits Mark. If we're not setting it aside the others, it fits Mark. But if you've read the others, it feels like it needs something else. And so... It's not hard to imagine that somebody came along at at some point and said, this needs to be harmonized with the other Gospels. It needs a better ending. And this other stuff was pieced together and spliced onto the end. Now, somebody might ask, well, Pastor Greg, if if all of this stuff in verses 9 through 20 is material that can be found somewhere else in the New Testament, then why not just preach it? Because... As Pastor John read in the beginning, all Scripture is God-breathed. And as a preacher, I am, I am called to preach the Word. And the inspired Word includes not just what is written, but where it's written. And it is my strong conviction that these 12 verses are not the inspired ending of Mark. They were not in the autograph. And so I will not preach them. And my view on this does not put me out on the kook fringes of, of, of students of the Bible or pastors. The vast majority of commentators and scholars hold that this longer ending is not original. In fact, all of the commentaries that I consulted agree with this. And, and listen, it's rare. I do this week after week, consulting commentaries to make sure that I'm not, I'm not out on the fringes. It is rare to get three or more commentaries to agree, to agree on any one thing. All the commentaries that I consulted agree that the last 12 verses that we have in the ESV and, and any translation, those last, 12, those last 12 verses are likely not original. So should we be troubled by this note in the ESV. Absolutely not. Such notes in our Bibles should comfort us. When we see a note like this, it indicates that the manuscript evidence is clear. Of course, there are variants. There's going to be. It's unavoidable because we have human beings hand-copying things. But praise God that He has loved us so much that he made it obvious to the early church what they were copying, that not only did they copy it with care, but they copied it voluminously, and we have so many manuscripts to compare to one another. That's the genius of the transmission of the Gospel. It's the genius of the transmission of the New and Old Testaments. We have so many to compare to one another that we are able to be confident that the text that we have is reliable and accurate. We should be comforted by how infrequent these kinds of footnotes are in our Bible. But we do come across them. They are rare. Everywhere we don't find a footnote, that means the textual scholars were comparing the underlined manuscripts, and because there is no note mentioned there, there was no significant debate about what the original reading was. 
Where we do find a note, there was debate, but even there the manuscripts have, have told us what the reading should be. We should also be comforted that even in these places where we do find, where we do find these notes, like Mark 16, 9 through 20, there's nothing doctrinally at stake. God has blessed us tremendously by preserving the text of Scripture in a multitude of witnesses such that we have the gift of reading a reliable, accurate translation of the original text. And it testifies from beginning to end in in many ways to a God who so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever trusts in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And listen, all of your pastors, all of your pastors are aware of all of these things and we have dedicated our lives to studying the Bible, not just studying the Bible, but studying the Bible in the original languages, to taking sentences apart, parsing verbs, paying attention to verb tenses. That makes no sense if we are not confident in what the text says. We have a reliable text. We should praise God for it. We should read this book. We should believe it. We should live in light of it. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to spend a few moments in silence, reflection, praising God for what He has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we do praise You for those who have gone before us, those whom You inspired to, to pen the autographs, those whom you moved to copy those autographs, those whom you have moved throughout the centuries to do the difficult work and the tedious work of textual criticism so that we have been handed down a reliable and accurate text in our own language. We thank you, Father, for those brothers and sisters throughout the centuries who were willing to literally give their lives that they might pass down your word. We pray, Father, that you would grant us to cherish this word, this word in a measure that is commensurate with those centuries of work and passion and inspiration. We pray for our brothers and sisters across the globe who do not themselves have a copy of your word in their own tongue. And we pray that your work would continue to translate your word into every language known on this planet, that there might be a reliable translation of your word in every language, that all your people might be able to read the Bible in their native tongue, that we all might know you and love you and tell others, of your Son who died that we might be redeemed. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.